morning we are starting a new series of teaching and this series is called More Than a Name. And during this series we're going to be exploring some of the names of God, but not just in like a theological sense of here's some of the names of God, but actually exploring what they mean and actually when you find that meaning, what are the implications for us as people who follow Jesus, who worship this God that we're talking about. Bible passages will be up on the screen, but if you want to turn, we're going to turn to Exodus 34. Now, this is one of the few passages in the Bible, possibly the only one, where God describes himself directly to us, not through an author. This is this is where God comes and describes himself to us. And interestingly, is one of the most quoted passages of scripture by scripture elsewhere. Uh, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, and it says this, And he passed, he being God, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Some of us will be familiar with some of those phrases, you know, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God. That's language we, we use a lot. But there is some, I don't know if you spotted it, there is some kind of weird grammar going on. And grammar may be the wrong word because my English is terrible. But it says this, the Lord, the Lord. It's a weird thing to say that twice. In Hebrew, the Lord is, is this word Yahweh. And Yahweh is the name for the Hebrew God. We use the word God a lot, I guess you'd recognize. We talk about God, we talk about the Spirit of God, and that, that is not necessarily wrong. But God in and of itself is just a title. It's not his name. And that's a bit of what we're unpacking this morning. So if we went to the Arabic world and started talking about God, the assumption would not be that we're talking about Yahweh. The assumption would be that we're talking about Allah, because that's their, when you talk about God, that is their worldview. But it's repetition in the passage of Yahweh, Yahweh, or the Lord, the Lord. In English, when we want to emphasize something, if we're writing, we might italicize the word so we say it we pause and say it more slowly or we might use other words so instead of something just being good it might be very good in hebrew actually when you want to emphasize a point you repeat it so this is yahweh yahweh slow down think about this this is the name of god pay attention to this now in my bible it reads the lord the lord the gracious and compassionate god but actually in hebrew that it's in a different order yahweh yahweh or the Lord, the Lord, God, gracious and compassionate. If you read that in Hebrew, it reads Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim. Now some of you are going, why so much Hebrew? We'll come to that. Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim. Translated as the Lord God. And that's the name that we're going to explore this morning. And I'm going to move quite quickly through this. Um, there's a lot of ground to cover and I want to do it quickly. And for some of you, you're like, this is a lot of Hebrew and stuff and it doesn't add up. What I would say is this bit of teaching is quite important for the weeks that follow. So I'm told that the guys who are preaching after me, it will feel less like I'm using lots of Hebrew and saying lots of big words. And I'm going to try my best to explain them all. But as I said before, if this is Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, the word that we translate into English as God is Elohim. And throughout scripture, and this might shock some of you, where the word Elohim can also refer to other gods. So you might have, so you have the Lord God, but you might have other passages where in the Hebrew it reads the Elohim. They're the same word. In Genesis 1, this will be familiar to a lot of us, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning, this is what it would read, Elohim created. So it's not the gods, it's God. And we later learn that this one creator God is called 
Yahweh. And it's interesting that scripture talks about other gods. I would suspect for some of us that makes us kind of uncomfortable. Some of you have been brought up in church backgrounds, maybe like me, where that feels a little bit weird to use that word, gods. But actually, if it's just a title, it's kind of okay. Imagine that I'm like king or president. So Donald Trump, God bless him for all of his interesting behavior, is the president. But other people are also the president. I'm not comparing Donald Trump to God, just to clarify. It's the, it's the president bit that's important, okay? Um, but actually, we have a queen now, and that's the title. And one day she'll abdicate or die, and we'll have a new king. It's the title. Her name is Elizabeth, but her title is queen. Now, all this stuff I'm talking about this morning, I'm going to do it at kind of high speed, and it's going to leave you with lots of questions. And my encouragement would be, if this interests you, or you're unsure about some of the things I've said, then there is um, a bunch of guys who do something called The Bible Project. Some of you will have come across this. Some of you might have reading plans on your Bible app by them. The Bible Project do a podcast, and one guy is a biblical scholar who is super smart and super good at explaining things. The other guy is like me, who kind of sits there and scratches his head and goes, what did you say? And it gets explained over these, this podcast format. So you can go and look at that, look that up. If you listen to around episode 96, 97, I think they unpack some of this much better and in greater detail. And there's a whole episode where they just, they are answering people's questions about this. If you're following in your Bibles, if you turn to Exodus 12, um, this is a kind of familiar story to a lot of us. Exodus 12 is part of the narrative where God is bringing the plagues against Egypt, against Pharaoh. And in this passage, many of us would know this is the passage where Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, and it's the whole, God says, let my people go, and Pharaoh goes, no, and then there's a whole bunch of plagues. And we think the narrative is just about God's people being set free, which it is. But underneath that face value thing of God's people being set free, there is this great spiritual battle going on. So in this story... God, Yahweh, is taking on the gods of Egypt. Now, in Egyptian culture, they had a pantheon of gods, like a whole bunch of gods. But their king god is a guy called Amon-Ra, which is, I think we've got a picture. I assume that's what it would look like. I have no idea. That's just what Google told me. Okay. Amon-Ra. Now, this is, like as I said, the, the king god in the Egyptian pantheon. This is the god of the sun, They're also known as. And what's interesting, when God brings the plague, have you ever wondered, why did God pick those plagues? Have you ever sat back and gone, why locusts? Why gnats? Of all the things to terrorize people, I know gnats are annoying, but it doesn't strike me as like, but if you look at the story, in each of the plagues, God is affronting one of the Egyptian gods. So one of the plagues, the sun is blotted out for three days. What is God saying? I am Yahweh, and I am more powerful than your king God. Next is 12 and 12. He says this, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And some of this seems weird to us. And some of this is entirely new to us. When I first heard this, I was like, hang on a minute. I need to go and think about this a lot more. But as you read through the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, you see this, there are a lot of battles. But actually, as you read through, in a lot of the battles, underneath the physical battle where humans are fighting humans, there is a God who is at war with other gods. And these gods might be an unhelpful phrase for some of you. If it's easier, try spiritual beings, something like that. But before the story of the plagues, what's the first thing that happens? Moses and Aaron, if you remember, go to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh brings out his magicians and priests and sorcerers and this whole group of people, and Aaron throws down his staff. So this big stick throws it down, it turns into a snake. What happens next? 
Pharaoh turns around to one of his magicians and basically goes, right, your turn, lads. And they throw down a stick and it turns into a snake. The uncomfortable reality for some of us is, well, there must have been a, a source of power for that to happen. That actually these Egyptian gods, they're not false gods in the sense that they're just made up. They seem to have this real power. But Yahweh comes and he says, I am powerful over all of these gods. And other parts of the Bible talk about this too. Psalm 86 says, there is none like you among the gods. Psalm 96 and 4, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be revered above all gods. Actually, there is only one creator God worthy of worship. How many of you are familiar with the Ten Commandments? Like if you took a Sunday school test, you might get eight out of ten, something like that. In Exodus 20, uh, 3 to 5, it starts out by saying this, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, I don't know how you have read the Ten Commandments. For me, this always kind of seemed like one and a half commandments rather than two. You shall have no other gods before me and don't make idols. In my upbringing, those would be kind of the same thing because they're both just made up kind of entities. They have no real power and no real form. But God gives two very specific and different commands. First, do not have any other gods before me. Don't have any other Elohim before me, any other spiritual beings. Don't worship them. And the other is, don't have no idols. Don't craft these things that you worship. And the Bible seems kind of clear that there are these other gods, and this is uncomfortable, right? There are these other gods. And because of that, God is jealous for us. And and I don't mean that in a needy way. When we hear jealous, I think we kind of imagine like American teenager jealous of their boyfriend seeing another girl or something like that. You know, just this needy, weak jealousy. But I think it's different than that. I think a better image would be something like, and this is imperfect, being the parent of a teenager and you know that they are trying to meet a drug dealer. You are jealous for their attention because you know the place that they are going is only going to cause harm. And this jealousy actually matters. It's actually an important part of God's character. In almost all other world religions, they are what is called polytheistic. They have a whole bunch of gods. They have more than one god. Only Yahweh is the one who is jealous. In fact, the other gods are perfectly fine with you worshipping these other gods as long as you pay your due to them. Why? Actually, because as these other gods, if they are trying to take our attention, they are in opposition to Yahweh, and they don't care how we stop worshipping God and connecting to the source of life. They just want that to happen. They are happy for us to worship other gods because they're doing their job just fine. In 1 Kings 11, 4-7, you don't have to turn there. I'll go over it quickly. Uh, there's a story of Solomon. And how many of us, our worldview of Solomon is he is like the wisest man who ever lived? In my head, he's kind of this guy that is so wise that he would never do anything wrong. But actually, as you read Solomon's story, he gets quite a lot of things wrong. One being, um, in all of his wisdom, he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, I don't know how you found Valentine's Day. I just about got by with a card for one wife, right? 700 wives. And actually, those wives came from other nations. They worshipped other gods. And it says this, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart to other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And as this passage goes on, he goes and he builds altars in high places to these gods and not to Yahweh. 
In fact, this, he's built a whole temple to Yahweh, but he's not there. He's going up hillsides and building temples and giving sacrifices to these gods. What's interesting in this passage, and we see this in other points of the Bible too, is it would appear that these gods have names, and they're over particular places and particular people groups. They almost have these assignments to these different places. Why Why is that? Why do the Sidonians and the Ammonites not have the same god? They've got different gods. In Daniel 10, I'm just going to paraphrase this. You can go and read this. But there is a messenger from God who comes to Daniel. And what does he say? He said, I'm sorry I'm late. On the way here, I had to fight the prince of Persia. And he imprisoned me and I had to get Michael, an archangel, to come rescue me. For some of us, this is like, what are you talking about? This feels really super spiritual and weird. And I understand that feeling. But this is all scriptural. So he comes as the prince of Persia imprisoned me and then I had to get Michael to come and help me out. So now I'm here, but when I go back, just be aware the prince of Greece might come. These are all these spiritual beings with these titles and names and they're in particular places. These Elohim, these gods, are all over the place. And they are over peoples and nations and they wreak havoc and destruction and injustice and mislead people. That is what they are about. And actually it's true here in Britain as much as anywhere else. The, the common myth in our culture is that, oh, we're a secular nation. We don't have these gods. It's a, an archaic idea. But I don't think that's true. I think that's just what we tell ourselves. And probably the gods are perfectly happy with that understanding that, oh, we're not here. We're not. Just ignore us. We're not doing anything. And I know this sounds super spiritual. I do. Can I just say, in the six years I've been at Vineyard, this is the first piece of teaching like this we have done. This isn't the norm, but it is important. If we are going to explore who God is, then we have to wrestle with the language God refers to himself and the implications of that. And to get even more weird for a moment, some of these gods we can experience. I don't know if you've ever walked into a house or a, a pub or a club or just about anywhere, to be fair, and just gone, there is just something about this place that is uneasy and weird. Or to be fair, meeting people and you're going, yeah, I'm not sure. There's just something that I don't, it's, as a Christian, okay, there's something in my spirit that goes, yeah, I'm not sure about that. The weirdest experience I personally have had of this, and this is personal experience, you're not going to be able to put this under a microscope and measure it, I'm sorry, but it was I was in Camden Town Market. I quite like Camden. I don't know if you've been to Camden. Uh, the market is an interesting place. It's just this kind of wonderful mix of all sorts of stuff. But as I was we were going around the market, I couldn't even tell you what I was looking at. I remember looking at something on a stool, and what I felt was, like two hands come around my neck and around my shoulders. And I just, I flipped around. I thought, someone's grabbing me. This is weird. As I turned around, I realized there was nobody there at all. But what was there was tarot card reading. This weird, and I can't put anything, I couldn't go, oh, if you look at the scripture, it says this. But this is what I observed. There was this feeling of darkness and things that were trying to grab hold of me. And turned around, and there's, what is witchcraft? I don't know if you've experienced anything like this. I don't think necessarily everybody has to experience things like this. And in our culture, we try and rationalise it away. Oh, you, would, you just had a dodgy sandwich, whatever the reason is. We would try and rationalise it away. But there are people all the time, all over this country, in all sorts of realms, that experience these things. Uh, and if it's uncomfortable now, I'm going to make it a little bit more uncomfortable. Uh, if we turn to Psalm 82, there is this slightly odd feeling psalm. says this, God presides in the great assembly. That word great assembly is probably better translated as um, excuse me, as divine counsel. So God presides over this divine counsel. He renders his judgment among the gods. 
How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing, they understand nothing. So this this is full of imagery. God is in this council of gods, if you can picture that. Some of you have seen this in movies, particularly you know movies that are around Greek mythology, they'll have images like this. And that's partly because this, this imagery is not unique to the Judeo-Christian world. Actually, the Greeks had a view of this, but actually, because they were proper democrats of sorts, right? They, their gods would argue amongst themselves about what they were going to do on the earth. This imagery is different. Hebrew theology is different. Actually, God is over this assembly. He presides over it. It would translate kind of as Elohim presides over the Elohim. That the Elohim is important. But look at what God is doing. He presides over them. What is he doing? He's bringing accusation against them. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? What does he tell them to do? He says, defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hands of the wicked. This is... This is almost the same thing he calls us to do as humans. And actually in the human story, many of us will be familiar with this idea that we fell away from God. But actually when you look at this, you would go, well, it would would seem there's been this, the the Elohim, these gods, these spiritual beings have fallen away too. What is God saying to them? Stop doing this stuff. Stop the evil, the injustice, the hurt. Further down in this passage, this is a psalm of a guy called Asaph. His prayer, Asaph's prayer is this, rise up, O God. Judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Now, if we look at the way these gods behave, they're over nations and people groups and stuff. What's the prayer? God, come and do away with all that. Take all these nations and places and peoples as your own again. Now, at this point, all this theology has come straight out of the Old Testament, and we could leave it there, right? Unfortunately, this worldview would seem to be the worldview of Jesus. So Mark 5, this is quite a long passage. I'm going to go through this relatively quickly. Mark 5, from verse uh, verse 1. Uh, they went across, this Jesus and the, the disciples, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Jesus, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained by hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. And then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. So he gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down a steep bank into a lake and were drowned. What on earth is going on in this story? Jesus is coming to answer Asaph's prayer. This is the beginning of the end of this rule of tyranny and chaos. Now, we're still living in the middle of that. But when Jesus comes, actually, our hope is that he's beginning to bring an end to this. And it's interesting that when Jesus steps out of the boat, what does this, this, this man full of impure spirits do? He runs to Jesus. What does he say? What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? There is this recognition that 
Jesus has come as God, and this spirit, this Elohim, this demon, whatever you want to call it, can only do what he is told to do at this point. And then what's interesting is Jesus says, well, what's your name? If names didn't matter, Jesus wouldn't ask this question. Now, this takes place in, this is outside of Jewish territory, which is occupied by the Romans at this point. This is just in Jewish territory, uh, modern-day Jordan. What is, what's your name? He says, well, legion. What's legion? Legion is a, a military unit in the Roman Empire. Now, I can't make any theological points. For me, just with my own personal thoughts, it's interesting that that name is legion in the Roman Empire that built so much of his empire by the power of legions. And then what's interesting, what is the request of the demon Elohim spiritual being, whatever language is comfortable to you? What does he say? Don't send us out of the area. This place, this people group, don't send us away. And then what happens? They get sent into the pigs, and the pigs run down a hillside and drown and are killed. Actually, what are these Elohim doing? The thing that they always do, bringing about destruction and death. And I just want you to... It says there's a a herd of 2,000 pigs. That has quite substantial financial consequences for the person who owned these pigs. It's destruction and death. In Jesus' language, actually, it's they come to steal, to kill, and destroy. They really show themselves for what they are. So we see this glimpse of Jesus facing the reality of this spiritual war that makes so many of us so uncomfortable. But all the biblical authors seem to agree there is one creator God who is over all, But there is this weird multiplicity of spiritual beings. And some of them have rebelled against him and some have not. And those that do rebel actually have taken the battleground of the earth to fight God and oppose his will. And for some of us, this you immediately go, well, hang on, this is getting really weird. We have this real struggle with this idea of a spiritual world because our world is so so physical and we can see it and feel it and experience it. And this perhaps is something else. But we are Western, most of us are Western Europeans, uh, we've grown up in a modern world that is after the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment really promoted the superiority of the mind over all things. And we live in a culture where scientism reigns. Now, to explain scientism, it's not science. I have no, I love science. Science is fascinating. I love looking at all the things we discover in space. When it gets smaller, I stop caring. But that's just because of my interest, not because I disagree with it or have any problems with it. Scientism is slightly different. Scientism is basically, if you cannot measure it, if you cannot solve it in an equation, in an equation, put it under a microscope, then it can't be real. Everything else that can't be measured in some of those ways is superstitious nonsense. How many of you had that leveled against you when you tried to explain Jesus to people? Anybody experience that here? Could I say this? The majority of the world look at us in the West and go, really? We live in this bubble of the West where we think we've got all the answers. Most of the world looks at us and goes, that's really your explanation for everything? And interestingly, this idea of this world that we cannot see and could not possibly experience is what is prevalent in some of the most popular scientific theories about the universe. This idea there's all sorts of things happening we cannot see and experience is perfectly acceptable in scientific circles at the moment. They would call it different dimensions. That actually these things, we can't see them, we can't experience them, but they do affect us. They do impact the world around them. But for many of us in the modern West, particularly in the church or those who would consider themselves spiritual there are three world views that generally are followed the first is monotheism and this is what some of us would have experienced growing up in the church if we did that that there is one god that there is just this one mountain that stands alone to climb there are no other mountains no distractions just one god and the only way we can get up that mountain is to follow the path of jesus and you're going to go well i believe that bear with me The second worldview is universalism, and this is 
this is uh, there's probably other phrases I could use that are better for this. So I'm sorry if this offends anybody in the room, but universalism. There is one God who is not a mountain. He's kind of above all the mountains. We do not know what it, this God, is. It, but it's probably the universe, ultimately. It's probably the reason for everything. But there are a whole bunch of mountains. Christianity would be one. Uh, Islam would be one. Buddhism, uh, Wiccan, different forms of spirituality. The whole, there's all these mountains. And you can follow any one of those mountains because they all lead to God. And actually, this is a really new view in the world. We think there was just it's always been this way. That's not true. Uh, the early 19th century when Europe was crazy about just generally taking over the world and forcing people to believe whatever we believed. Um, there was, as we went about being colonial, most of the people that went would have called themselves Christians, but in reality they were deists. They believed in God, but they didn't follow Jesus of Nazareth. They believed in God in this kind of weird, distant deity over the, all of us. And what they observed as they went into the different parts of the world uh, was that there was other people worshipping other gods. But there were similarities, and because of these similarities... Oh, well, they almost lead to God, all of these paths. And for sure, there are similarities, but there are also just irreconcilable differences between a lot of these religions. And interestingly, if you had spoken to the people who were conquered by the, the Europeans, they would not go, oh, yeah, makes sense. Our path and your path lead to God. No, they would go, not a chance. Actually, when, if you talk to people of certain religions, they would say, well, we're, our God is at war. So that's universalism. And that's quite a popular view, I think, because it doesn't offend anybody in this world where we're not allowed to offend anybody. A lot of people in, in my generation, a lot of my school friends would kind of be okay with the idea of universalism because people can believe what they want. And the third one is uh, monotheism. And some of you are going, well, hang on, that was point one. Theologically, there's a technical term which is creational monotheism. And here's the idea. There is not one mountain. And it sounds like heresy at this point. Bear with me. There is not one mountain. Uh, the mountain of Islam leads to Allah, and uh, Buddhism leads to Nirvana, and I'm going to butcher some of these different religions, and I apologize. But there's one for Hinduism, and for Wiccan, and various forms of spirituality. But they do not lead to Yahweh. And this is where the name starts to become important. They do not lead to Yahweh, to his life, to his renewal, to his restoration, to his love. God is a mountain, Yahweh is a mountain that towers over all of these other mountains. And Yahweh is nothing like the others. Ultimately, the, the others as you climb up lead you nowhere. And actually, what's interesting, if you look at the imagery of this, actually it's not even that we have to ascend the mountain of Yahweh, using that imagery. The reality of following Yahweh is that he takes on the form of flesh and blood and comes down the mountain to us. That is entirely different from all of the other gods who demand toil and sacrifice ultimately to die on a mountain. Yahweh comes down the mountain. And this isn't universalism. The other mountains lead to death. And this isn't monotheism in the way some of us might have been brought up. In that Jesus does give us access to the Father. That is right. That is correct. But there are other mountains in this spiritual landscape. And those other gods have power and people genuinely follow them. And how much of that actually resembles the gospel? Actually, Jesus takes on flesh and blood as Yahweh comes down the mountain to us. That's the gospel. God came down to rescue us. And actually, this is the biblical worldview. This seems to be what all of the biblical authors say is happening. And the other mountains will one day perish and we will be left with one. So what difference does this actually make? I'm aware I've rattled through this quickly. You're going to have all sorts of questions, some of which I have no answer for. I'll say that now. I'm quite comfortable not having all of the answers to this because this is cosmic stuff way beyond my pay grade. Okay? 
that there are people who have better thoughts on this than me. But this is just like a weird theology lesson with Hebrew and worldviews, and what difference does this make to us? Well, there's implications for all sorts of things in our own walk with Jesus. The first is this has implications for how we think about the gospel. This is common in my generation, particularly, oh, you, it's great that you're a Christian, but I'm, I'm not religious, I'm just spiritual. Have you, has anyone heard things like that before? I'm just spiritual. Now, if we have that first worldview of monotheism where there are no other mountains, what's our response to that? You need to repent and believe. We have no real answer, just you need to repent and believe in God. But if this other worldview is true, then what can I say? Oh, great, I'm spiritual too. What spirit are you in relationship with? The question changes. You can acknowledge that actually, yeah, they genuinely might be in spiritual relationship with this other God, spiritual being, whatever you want to call it. And there are all these other spirits. What is the opportunity in that? Oh, have you met, have you met Jesus? Have you encountered the Holy Spirit? Because we know actually that the Holy Spirit is the spirit to have this relationship with. And he is powerful and he is compassionate and he is loving. It gives us a different answer to this. Oh, I'm, I'm just, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. Go, hey, I am spiritual too. Can I introduce you to my spirit, (laughs) as it were? Come and meet him. It has implications for how we think about evil. How many of you come across a question phrase, something like this? If God is really all loving and all powerful, why is there so much suffering in the world? How many of you come across that and you kind of go, I haven't really got an answer for that one right now. That's difficult. What is interesting is scripture doesn't really answer that question. It doesn't really, have you ever noticed that? It doesn't say a whole lot about all this evil and suffering in the world, other than, Oh, it's going to be here. You're going to have the poor amongst you. You're going to experience suffering. The assumption is that we would understand that coming into reading the scripture. Actually, if there are these other gods and they are fighting and battling against God and against us, then there is going to be evil. It's just a part of the story. But we don't hold this understanding in the West anymore. We've done away with that idea. But when we recognize that between God and us is this whole society of spiritual beings, some of which are for God and some of which are against God, and actually why would there not be suffering and evil in the world? Greg Boyd, was a clever man, wrote a book called God at War. He says this, When one possesses a vital awareness that in between God and humanity there exists a vast society of spiritual beings who are quite like humans in possessing intelligence and free will, there is simply no difficulty in reconciling the reality of evil with the goodness of a supreme God. It virtually sidesteps the problem of evil. Now, it doesn't sidestep it in that there is evil. It doesn't do away with evil. But it's not the same philosophical problem. Why? Because what is God's? what did God say to the divine council? Stop doing these evil things. And one day God will rise up and write this evil, this suffering. And then lastly, there are just implications for our spiritual life. I'm going to go through this as fast as I can. If this stuff is real, then we have to be aware of it in our own spiritual life. And some of it seems obvious. So things like Wiccan and tarot cards, uh, medium psychics, just avoid that stuff. And that seems like the apparent one. And and I've heard, you hear stories sometimes. I went to uh, a tarot card reader and they were right. I don't know if you can count that. And go, well, I'm not surprised. Actually, through the Bible, you see prophets of other gods prophesy things that turn out to be right. Stay away from that stuff. But also, stay away from the things that don't look like gods, perhaps, but are. So stay away from uh, sexual abuse, pornography. And could I say pornography is like the one that we pretend we're okay with, but riddles the church. And it feels like you're just looking at a website, but you're not. It's a difficult thing. But uh, drugs and alcohol are others. Manipulation of others which is tricky because you end up controlling them, and that's kind of witchcraft and stuff. Um, it's a controversial thing to say. 
Uh, bitterness is another one. So Ephesians 4.26, do not let the sun go down whilst you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Bitterness is an interesting one because it, it warps us and changes us. And we can cover up bitterness and go, well, I'm justified in how I feel. Righteous anger is okay. But see, what's the instruction? Learn to forgive, otherwise you're giving the devil a foothold. Don't hold on to bitterness. And beware of idols, you know, money, sexuality, romance, success, power. It's interesting, the book of 1 John, uh, John was one of the disciples of Jesus, and he's writing this book probably in about his 90s. These are almost like his departing words. And the very last thing, if you read the book of 1 John, there's a paragraph of text towards the end, and then there is this one line all by itself. What does it say? Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. There is no explanation. There is no unpacking of what that means. Dear children. Little children, keep away from idols. So, some of you are like, I am, that was theology lesson too much. I'm now tired. Um, Some of you are like, you've just come back into the room. You're like, oh, we finished. Okay, great. Some of you are like, this is challenging. And some of you are like, this is offensive. This offends my theology and my worldview. Maybe as I've been speaking, the Holy Spirit just brought up some things for you. Maybe you need to deal with that. Others of you, as I said, maybe you're just struggling. But all we're going to do, we're going to close. But we're, before we close, we're just going to pray. And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. Because in a sense, my only response at this point is, okay, God, if this stuff is the way the world is, then my goodness, do we need you, Holy Spirit. So should we stand and we'll pray and we'll wait.